This season in Advent, our worship is being shaped by the hymn Christus Paradox. We sang the first verse in response to the lighting of the Advent candle, and we will sing the following three verses in response to this sermon. Bill introduced this hymn last week. It was written by Canadian Sylvia Dunstan, and she was inspired by the writings of Soren Kierkegaard on the paradox of the incarnation, the incarnation being the mystery of God becoming human. Now, the Apostle Paul was the first to write of this almost incomprehensible way that God chose to live amongst us, by emptying God's self into the flesh of a human. By becoming incarnate in Jesus, God teaches us the power of being humble, not weak, but humble before God and one another. God teaches us to embrace the grace and beauty of our human bodies, And God's incarnation teaches us that we are included in God's plan to redeem and save all of creation. Through God's incarnation in Jesus, we learn who we were created to be and the good that our lives can do. Before I read this passage from the letter to the church in Philippi, please pray with me. God, gather us in to hear your word so that we too may have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. We pray that you will empty our minds of all the noise that gets in the way of hearing and believing. And may your words and the words that we now share give us courage to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in the new life we have through Christ. Amen. So here's Paul's letter Chapter 2 from the letter to the Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to both do God's will and to work for God's good pleasure. Here ends our reading. Written before any of the Gospels, this passage is one of the earliest and most trusted sources, claiming that into Jesus' flesh, God emptied a portion of God's self. Paul's letter reminded the Philippians that to follow Christ Jesus, they were to set aside any personal desires so that they may, as I quote, let the same mind be in them as was in Christ Jesus. Never before on earth had God walked in a manner that was recognizable and intelligible to us. Jesus was both man and God. Throughout human history, human beings have been caught up in envy and selfish ambition such that they imagined equality with God to be the ultimate prize and an opportunity to triumph. Yet the way Jesus lived reflected God's will was not what anyone had expected. Now, we know the stories. 
Jesus exhibited strength and wisdom that was beyond human imagination when it was in the service of others, never in dominating or controlling. When tempted or exhausted, Jesus turned time and time again to God in prayer. Jesus lived humbly with reverence for relationships and people without any distinction of birthright, profession, religion, or ethnicity. And we can never underestimate how radical Jesus' acceptance of women and children was in a society that never before saw them as anything more than useful tools or slaves to another's will. Jesus' compassion towards women and children and anyone without power set the example for the way our minds are to see and relate to each other. So we have the same mind in us that was in Christ when we, ris- when we resist ambitious, self-seeking models of power. For Christ never filled himself up at the expense of another. We also have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus when we defend the defenseless. We have the same mind that was in Christ when we stand up for others and our own humanity. When God entered the time of human history, God gave us Jesus and Jesus alone as the guide for living a holy and pleasing life. God has no position to defend, so there is never envy or ambition in God or Jesus. And accordingly, to be in the form of God is to never exploit power, but to embrace and give God's free, dispossessing love. Now, whenever I think of the incarnation, I think of the two dogs one of my professors had at the University of Chicago. Susan Schreiner was very tough. She was always cranky, and she was an intellectual historian. She studied what people thought, who influenced them, and the ideas that they then sparked. But did I mention she was really cranky? She had no time for master's degree students. I don't know that she necessarily had time for students. She studied, she wrote prolifically, and she was an amazing lecturer. But since I think I was so much older than my fellow students, and she was curious about my second career, when she finally met my black lab, she decided that I was okay. You see, Susan had two golden retrievers. One was named Luther, after the notorious Martin Luther, and the other dog was named for a theologian who was as obscure as Luther was notorious. And this dog's name was Kusa. No one recognizes Kusa. Well, I might not have been as bright as my fellow students, and I certainly wasn't, but I was savvy enough to pay attention to the work of a theologian for whom my professor named her beloved dog. Nicholas of Kusa was a German monk in the 15th century who was schooled in medieval theologies that attempted to prove God's existence by positive or negative arguments or to define the essence of God. How hilarious might that have been? At that time, though, structured arguments won the respect while human curiosity and experience were dismissed as inferior guides to any kind of knowledge. It was almost as if the writings of the Apostle Paul's call for humility had been forgotten. Mathematics dominated the academy with its foundation to measure, define, and rationalize ideas, and Kusa was a mathematical scholar. He was so bright. He was also a gifted mediator whose success in reconciling warring factions within the Catholic Church 
equipped him to be part of a papal embassy to Constantinople in 1437. There was an attempt to reconcile or reunite with the Eastern Church, and my guess it was Rome's attempt to dominate. No surprise, the negotiations failed. And on a long, arduous trip home, they were caught in a storm during which Cusa experienced a revelation from God that he calls a celestial gift. It was this experience, and remember, experience wasn't valued. It was this experience and his curiosity to understand what it meant that inspired his masterpiece, what's called On Learned Ignorance. His treatise is described as, I quote from scholars, elliptical and sometimes obscure to the point of intractability. And that's describing the Latin, not the English translations. On learned ignorance remains for me the most difficult and at the same time most lucid explanation of the incarnation. When I told Katie I was thinking about preaching on Nicholas of Cusa and that it was probably a really dumb idea because he's so dense. She said, oh my God, it's the first thing I read to Harrison. And I'm thinking, he's five months old. It's only going to get better. It will get better, Harrison. But Nicholas of Cusa has some great stuff to say. Cusa argues that all things have a comparative nature about them such that to explore the uncertain, you can only go through that which is certain. But since material things are always in some way unstable, he pursued the only discipline that was relatively free of subjectivity, and that was mathematics. He wrote, throughout the ages, the wise wisely sought illustrations of things that the intellect could search, and mathematical signs have an inherent incorruptible certainty. So these symbols were the path to divine knowledge. In his work on learned ignorance, he explores the nature of points, finite and infinite lines, and then the center and the circumference of circles to argue the paradox and the possibility of the infinite and the finite residing at the same time. He goes on with lines and circles, and I was fascinated. It's been a long time since I'd studied math in that way, and you really do stretch your mind to think until you get to a point where you're exhausted. And that was part of Kusa's plan. He drives a reader to fatigue, and that's when he says, we are to seek, and seek until we finally let go of our understanding, our comparative, our quantifiable, and our logical understanding. And when we empty ourselves of such lofty ideals of knowing, and finally admit our ignorance, that's when we find God. For this monk and mathematician, it was elusive, but at the moment that you know that you cannot know, God reaches us from across the divine and moves us from a curiosity to be certain to a desire, just a desire to have an intimate relationship with God. You see, God seeks our faith and love, and we should never seek more than to love and be faithful to God. For Kusa, only by knowing Christ, who is both man and God, may we possess some secure norm of what God may be. So just follow Christ. So Advent is a time to ponder these paradoxes so that we can appreciate the gift of God's presence in human flesh, what it was and what it remains today. Advent is a time to empty yourself of a desire for certainty and instead marvel at the mystery and really imagine God in our flesh 
and rejoice, except that we have limits in symbols and language, but we never have limits in the way that God can startle us, comfort and inspire us. Now, I was thinking of Kusa and the Incarnation and Paul's call to let the same mind be in us as I flew to Texas a couple of weeks ago along with the mission team. If you'd been at the nine o'clock worship service, you would have been very proud and delighted to see so many of our youth speaking candidly of their experiences there. As I was flying down there, I thought, although the Incarnation is a paradox and I can't speak about it, I'm a preacher, so I should find something to say about this. Our flight to Houston was actually a red eye. Sylvie Pern, who is our youth leader, knows that the time to take a group of youth is through the airports when they're absolutely deserted. So it was a red eye that we took to Houston. And against a clear, star-speckled sky, I noticed a few very dense white clouds and then the city lights. To say it was beautiful seems just far too trite. It was well past midnight, and what struck me was the contrast between the limitless horizons of the Texas countryside, the city of Houston, and then these dense clouds that seemed to obscure everything behind them. And then in the wee hours of the morning, we piled into vans and sailed along on deserted highways for about an hour, and then we slammed into a cloud that had descended onto the highway. We were caught in a thick fog. We had to slow down to an absolute crawl because we couldn't see much ahead of us. So I say, thank God for Google Maps and for very calm van drivers. Those dense clouds foreshadowed so much of what I learned on the trip. We worked under the guidance of the Cajun Army. Now the Cajun Army, for those of you that don't know, it's not a surprise, the Cajun Army is a paradox. It has no authority. It has no governing hierarchy. It has no entrance requirements, nor formal sources of funding. It shouldn't exist, but it does. It's merely the collective efforts of ordinary people who have come together and decided that they would help those whom society and governments have abandoned. They don't know where the next meal will come from. They don't know who's going to fund the supplies. But it happens, and it happens, and people raise their hand to help. Here's some examples of what I saw. I worked with a number of veterans who were healing from PTSD and other invisible wounds, and they were very clear to say to me, Joe, send veterans down here because this is where we heal by helping others. There was a woman who'd volunteered as a dispatcher for the Cajun Navy. For three days, she thought she was doing this to help coordinate rescues of residents caught during Hurricane Harvey. She started in August. She started in August and has not yet returned to her home in Baton Rouge. Tears came to her eyes as she described her grandchildren's rescue from the second floor of a motel by some guy in a bass boat, and she will never know who it was. Her law practice will be on hold for the next year as she works for the Cajun Army to find those whom FEMA and others have ignored, and she is the one helping coordinate rebuilding. Our youth, they put on hazmat suits, head to toe, big respirators, and they took up crowbars and sledgehammers to tear down mold-infested walls and ceilings, and they shoveled out the most nasty cockroach-infested belongings in homes, and they had wheelbarrows of what seemed like cockroaches. 
They also became skilled in hanging drywall and slapping mud on taped seams. They embraced jobs and people and their mission. I saw God animate them in ways that they never imagined. And through the experience, I saw that they held in their minds the mind of Christ to become the servant for the lost and the least. Those dense clouds startled me at the beginning of the trip. In hindsight, I was reminded that I am to empty my mind of what I think I know, to empty my mind of the limits that I may place on what we can do, and particularly what we can do together. Having the same mind in us that was in Christ calls us to think about others and to stop standing and to do anything that stands in the way of God's will for our humanity. Scripture claims that we were all created in God's divine image, both male and female. We all bear a unique aspect of God that is only further blessed by God's incarnation. To believe our bodies are God's creation compels us to think and speak theologically about the recent discovery of sexual harassment and abuse. No part of our existence is lived outside of God's care and presence, including every which way we relate to one another with our bodies. Now, I'm aware of tender ears that might be listening amongst all ages and hope any questions prompted may be answered with confidence grounded in God's love. The exposure of prominent leaders' inappropriate and demeaning behavior is rippling across industries, regrettably confirming that exploitive behavior can be found anywhere. In the past, it was the military and the church who were exposed for instances of sexual harassment of the vulnerable within their respective institutions. Now we learn of abuse in entertainment, media, higher education, and government, and most of us know that commercial industry was never immune. I recall from my decades in corporate, both within my own employer and client organizations, how cover-ups were manufactured to remove someone rumored of harassment, maybe placed on special assignment, only to then be moved back into a new position after the dust had settled. Yet the victim endured some form of retaliation or was ostracized or no longer trusted as being part of the team. Not always, but a lot of the time. Now we need to applaud the courage of those who have been silenced by intimidation and very real threats, and yet have spoken of abuse and mistreatment. It took a sense of self-worth to not be demeaned into being only an object for another person's desires, whether it be stated or acted on. It took the mind of Christ and Christ's strength to stand up against the establishment. So I think of Mary's words in the Gospel of Luke when she learned she was pregnant, singing, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. The ripple across industries at the highest echelons now encourages us to do more, to let the mind of Christ animate each of us. We are to live as though we truly believe God emptied a portion of God's self into every human being. So now, as we go into the holiday season, at gatherings, at work, or in families, or in the neighborhoods as they begin, we are the ones who can stop the coworker, the relative, or the neighbor 
who tries to lord themselves over another. Sometimes it's very subtle. It's the innuendo, the sarcastic joke, or the comment that might get a chuckle by just being kind of naughty. But when strung together, it's toxic. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's a nasty verbal violation or a physical encounter that strikes another to the core with fear and shame or anger. The physical hurts, the verbal hurts just as much. So now is the time for us to say no more. No more to those behaviors and statements that were previously brushed aside. No one's body is to be abused by another or objectified in speech. Now is the time to say no more to the persons who seek to fill themselves up at the expense of another. Now is the time for us to live as though we are the followers of Christ that we claim to be. God entered into a human body to show us our bodies are beloved. God, God redeemed the body of our slain Jesus to tell the self-serving violent forces that the worst they did towards Jesus that is now emptied of power and they no longer have the power. It's declared null and void. We have the opportunity and we have the obligation to ensure that the youth who found God by working side by side with others will not face hostile or degrading work environments. In Advent, it's the time for us to empty ourselves. It's for us to empty our lives of those things that don't give life. It's a time to empty ourselves and let God in and let us be transformed so that on Christmas we can be the ones to enter into and usher in a new age. To Christ's glory, alleluia, amen.